Well, today we are finishing our series on the fruit of the Spirit. They come from Galatians 5, and I want to put this on the screen for you and read to you of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So this final message, we're going to dig deeper into self-control. And I want to encourage you, open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Uh, I think it's fitting that this final message is on self-control because self-control is the rudder that really does direct all of the other fruit of the Spirit. It's the key that actually unlocks all the rest of them. If you really want to see the rest of the fruit of the Spirit come alive in your life, I'm telling you, self-control is going to be the key that unlocks them, the rudder that directs all of them. So before we jump into self-control, what is it? We need to talk about the human will. And I want to define it briefly for you. The will, the human will is the freedom to direct my actions as I desire. It's the freedom to direct my actions as I desire. Now, the human will, if you've been a part of our Fruit of the Spirit series, um, I have talked about the power of the human will on multiple occasions, and I want to come back to this because I think it is so important for us to understand and identify what self-control is biblically. The human will is exceedingly more powerful. Your human will is exceedingly more powerful than I believe you probably and I give credit. Every human, Christian, non-Christian, you have great capacity for self-control and endurance far past what you think you are actually capable of. Now, in the past, I shared with you a principle that I have come to love, and it's the principle of arbitrary thresholds. Really, arbitrary thresholds are limits that we set upon ourselves to avoid pain. And they're not always bad, but they can be very deceiving. Uh, I want to give you an example of what arbitrary thresholds might look like. I want you to think about for a moment something that is really annoying to you. Do not nudge your spouse or your children or your friends or your parents. I want you to think about something that is really annoying to you. I've been pretty transparent with you that there are things that bother me deeply, like chewing gum. It's disgusting and vile. Um, I've also shared with you my irritation at um, when you open up any kind of screwed on lid and it's not actually screwed on and you shake orange juice and it goes all over, like drives me insane, happens in my home constantly, okay? Um, but I want you to think about something that really, really annoys you. Now, raise your hand if you would consider yourself a germaphobe. Thank you. Thank you for your transparency on that. All right. How many of you would finish a sucker that somebody else started? Nobody? Nobody? Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Appreciate it. We got one. We got one. I got two, three. We got a bunch of kids who are pulling bubble gum off the bottom <laughs> of desks and finishing that. That's disgusting. Love you guys. Right? All right. Now, I want you to imagine, right? If I gave you a billion dollars, AJ, if I gave you a billion dollars, would you finish a sucker that somebody else started? Raise your hand if you'd finish it for a billion, a billion dollars. The government can't tax it. They can't touch it. 
I got one person I got my eye on. I'm just waiting for that hand to go up and I can't get it to go up. And so here's the deal. You say, I could never finish a sucker that somebody else started. That is an arbitrary threshold because actually what's missing is the right motivation. Let's go to a second one. What is the furthest you can run? Somebody just shout out to me. What is the furthest right now you can run? What is it? Three feet. (laughs) So honest and I love it. Somebody in the mileage realm. How about that one? Anybody, anybody in the mileage realm. Three miles. We got a three mile here. Okay. Could you run four if really pushed? Five? Okay. All of your family will be taken away from you if you don't make it to mile six. Will you make it? She's going to try, right? If you have to crawl, will you make it? I'm telling you, arbitrary threshold. You're like, yeah, three, eh, four, I guess, five. I mean, if you're pushing six. And my, my point is that what is missing? It's the right motivation. So we set these thresholds, and they're not bad thresholds, but they're there. We set them to mitigate pain. All right, now I want to talk about the high-functioning addict. The high-functioning addict is the person who can't stop, but you can control it enough to hide it. You can't stop, so in the secret places of your life, these things are happening, right? But you're high-functioning because most people don't know it, and you're able to kind of control it to agree. But in the quiet places of your life, you don't have the ability to stop this. Now, I want you to think about that. That, that is actually many of you in this room, many of you watching online as well. If I told you the next time you were going to engage in this habit, this addiction, that all of your family would be taken away from you forever, would you remarkably find self-control in that moment? You probably would. What if I told you that everything you own would be permanently taken away from you? You'd go to jail for the rest of your life. You'd be stuck in solitary confinement. Would you somehow muster up the will to not engage in that high-functioning addiction? Most people would. What's missing? Most people don't believe that the cost is great enough. Great enough. They are not sufficiently motivated. So let's just summarize what we've learned so far. Most people do not use the full power of their will because they're not sufficiently motivated. All right, so now that we got a glimpse into the human will, I think we can start to define self-control. Uh, there are two kinds of self-control. I want to start with what we call good self-control. This is something that anybody in the world, Christian or non-Christian, can do. And here's how we define it. This is the use of the will to direct one's own thoughts, emotions, and actions. And whenever somebody masters the human body, I mean, this is something to be admired. Uh, if you've ever seen Free Solo, Alex Hanold is a, he climbed El Capitan. El, I don't know how you say it, technically El Capitan. It's a Chicago way of saying it. But he climbed a really big mountain without any ropes. He did this free. And, and many, many athletes and commentators have said it is the single greatest athletic feat in human history. This guy's ability to control himself, to focus himself, to control his emotions, to control his mind, to control his behavior, and to direct it in, a, in, in, the, in the trajectory that he wants is powerful. You don't need the spirit of God to have what I call good self-control. You think about bodybuilders. I think bodybuilding is super weird, but I'm, I, I'm, if you do it, God bless you. I'm glad you do it. Uh, 
but I tell you, their mastery of the human body. Now take Arnold Schwarzenegger, his personal life and use of steroids aside, his unbelievable mastery of the human body that required years and years and years and years of discipline, use of the will, self-control, fasting. I mean, the list goes on and on. When I look at people who have mastered and hacked the human body, I am blown away by the sheer power of the human will that God has given to everybody because we are made in their image. Now, what is their motivation? Their motivation is probably self-glory. And I'm telling you, the motivation of self-glory is enough. It is enough to make people who don't love Jesus to do incredibly awesome, big things that the vast majority of humanity cannot do. But there is something better than good self-control that the Holy Spirit is offering to the people of God. First Timothy chapter four, verse eight, Paul says to Timothy, a younger pastor, for while bodily training is of some value, is disciplining your body of value. Yes, he says, but godliness is of value in every way. The second kind of self-control is godly self-control. Let's define this. It is the use of the will to direct one's own thoughts emotions, and actions for God or for God's glory. What's the difference? The difference is that the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart and a new set of motivations so that I am not simply controlling my behavior for self-glory, which is small. It does not last But what I'm actually able to do is use the will that God gave me plus the new heart that he has given me by the Holy Spirit. And now I am able to direct my thoughts and my emotions and my behavior for God's glory with the use of the will that he has given given me. Now my prayer is that over the next month, as the world goes crazy, Village Church, we would be people who exercise a remarkable amount of self-control with a new heart and motivation that God has given us for the glory of God. So here's what I want to do. We're looking at Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Let me set this up for you. Uh, This story is actually found in each of the four gospels. So what I'm going to actually do is I'm going to pull uh, pieces from each of the four gospels to show you kind of the whole breadth of the story that has taken place. Luke 22 takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, everyone, Jesus and his 11 disciples, because Judas is not there, everyone is exhausted. The tensions, by the way, are as high or as high as they get. Jesus has just rebuked some of his disciples. Uh, they were supposed to stay awake in the night and they were to pray and they fell asleep because their bodies just could not keep up. They were way past their arbitrary thresholds and actually reached the limit to what their bodies could do. Jesus is frustrated. He's frustrated at them. Jesus just got done praying, going before the Father because he knows what is about to happen. The full weight of God's wrath is about to be poured out on his body, soul, and emotions for the payment of the sins of anybody who would place their faith in him. He understands this. He is filled with anxiety. It's a very human look into Jesus because he's fully man and fully God. You see the breadth of his emotions. He's filled with enough anxiety that he's sweating blood and he's pleading with the Lord and he says, God, you can take anything away. You can do anything. If you can take this cup from me, if you can take what I, this, this punishment that I'm about to endure as an innocent man, God in the flesh, 
if there's any way that I don't have to endure this, could we please make this thing not happen? And then he says, but not my will, but yours. Jesus is coming to grips emotionally with the weight of what he's about to endure. He gets off of this prayer. He's rebuking the disciples. Tensions are high. Everyone is exhausted. And Jesus knows exactly what is about to happen. He knows that he is going to be taken into captivity in just moments. He knows that this captivity will lead to his beating and his ultimate execution publicly for the sins of the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into this moment and we're going to examine the self-control of Judas, the self-control of Peter, and the self-control of Jesus to give us a glimpse of some pitfalls and what this can look like. First, let's look at Judas. Verse 47, Luke 22, verse 47. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the 12, he was leading them. The book of Mark actually elaborates a little bit on this. Mark chapter 14, um, verse 43 says, With Judas, there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I want you to just think about this moment here, okay? This is all of the religious leaders of the nation and of the city of Jerusalem. This is the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. This is a whole group of them. This would sort of be like if all of the elders of Village Church, all of the deacons, and all of the staff showed up at your house to unjustly arrest you. Like that would be a crazy moment. This is a betrayal of their responsibility. It's a betrayal uh, of their culture and their context. This is a deeply heated moment filled with unbelievable social, political tension. So why is Judas leading this mob? Apparently word got out that there was a price on Jesus's head. He knew somehow that if he talked to the chief priests, that there was a certain amount of money that he could get to turn Jesus over. And what you're going to notice here is that no longer is Judas in control. Judas has given his will over to lustful greed. And once you give your will over to this, it will take control and it will lead you down a very dangerous path. And many of you know exactly what that leads to. The book of Matthew uh, chapter 26 gives us a little bit of insight into maybe what happened and what led up to this moment for Judas. Matthew 26, 14 says this, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest. I want you to notice this. The chief priest did not come to Judas. Judas, of his own will, because of his lustful and greedy heart, he set out an opportunity to pursue the leadership of Jerusalem so that he could monetize his relationship with Jesus. Now, this is a low moment. If you think about just the amount of decisions that led up to this decision, it's pretty unbelievable. He had to actually decide in his heart that he would sell out Jesus for money, knowing, by the way, when they got him, their objective would be to execute him under Jewish law, and if not Jewish law, then Roman law. He actually probably made a decision, if I go talk to them, I won't do it for less than blank shekels of money. Like if he went up to them and they said, we'll give you two shekels, he would have walked away and said, no, not enough. He'd have some kind of limit of what he was actually willing to sell out Jesus the Messiah for. He actually had to decide to lie and hide his conversation with these leaders. Verse 15 of Matthew 26 says, he says to them, now this is Judas to the high priest, to the chief priest, sorry. 
He says, what will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 shekels of silver. We don't know if this was a negotiation. We just know how it landed. And from the moment he, Judas, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Who was in control of Judas? It wasn't him anymore. It was lustful greed. Now back to Luke 22. We have religious leaders, angry crowds, clubs, swords, threats. Verse 47, Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him. This was the clue, the man that I kiss. This is Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas, why would you betray the son of man with a kiss. I want you to just pause for a moment. I want to double click on son of man because this is a theologically loaded term. And the first thing I need, to, I need you to know is that Judas knew the Old Testament. Judas was not dumb. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying when Jesus called himself the son of man. In fact, we go back to the book of Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. I want you to listen to this. This is the context, the theological context, the subtext for what Jesus is saying to Judas. Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he, the son of man, came to the ancient of days, who is the father, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. The son of man's dominion, it's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Judas, are you so blinded by your lustful greed that the person who will be in control of all nations and empires who will be the judge of the earth, you're going to choose 30 shekels of silver over loyalty to the son of man sanctioned by the ancient of days. Is Judas making a good decision, by the way? Have you ever made a good decision when you're filled with lustful greed? <laughs> Anybody? Like maybe a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> maybe Maybe you made one happy, lucky decision. But by and large, I don't talk to too many people who are like, that was a great decision. I was filled and controlled with lustful greed. I'm so happy with the outcome of how all this worked out. John 18 gives us a, a little bit different angle at what's happening in Luke 22. Here's what John 18 verse three says. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, meaning he actually went out and got soldiers to go with him. Think about the intentionality, the coordination of this. He procured, procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's nighttime, it's dark. They're doing this in secret. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, listen, listen to what happens next. This is, I love John's take on this. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So the, the people are coming. It's nighttime. He's just got done rebuking the disciples. He's filled with anxiety. He's submitted his will to the Father. Everyone's frustrated. Everyone's exhausted. It's the middle of the night and there's this crowd and they've got torches and they've got swords and they've got clubs and they've got weapons and they're ready for a fight. 
Jesus, knowing what is about to happen, he actually walks towards the crowd. The disciples probably are trying to figure out what's going on and, and following him. And, and here's what Jesus says. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Verse six says, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. I don't know what was happening here. I want to watch this. I am he. And they all, so their rears are on the ground right now. Verse seven says, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, I think with like a, a quivery voice, that's my theory, sticking with it. Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Like, this is so cool. I like John's version. Like, he's just like giving some of this context. And so they're all like getting up, they're getting their swords, they're getting their weapons. And, and here's what we see with Judas. Judas warns us of the evil we are capable of when we give our lustful desires control over our will. When you give this greed or lust control over your will, it will not turn out well for you. And many, many will be harmed in the process. Let's look at Peter. The emotional impulsivity of Peter. I love when people say to me, which disciple do you identify with the most? And they're like, Peter. And I'm like, oh, so you're emotionally impulsive and don't think before you do things, right? That's Peter. Verse 49, Luke 22. When those who were around him saw what would follow, meaning the disciples, they're with Jesus. And there's only one way this turns out. This turns out in a bloody battle where many people die, or it turns out in the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus. Now, what, what do you do? You're fiercely loyal to your rabbi. You know that Judas has betrayed you. You know that all of this is unjust. You know that none of it is fair. Do you rage? Do you go passive? Do you run away? Like, what do you do in this moment? 49 goes on. They said, now they're talking to Jesus, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Should we kill them all? Verse 50 says, and one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I want to be clear. Peter went in for the kill and he's lucky he just got his ear. These people are just getting off their rears. They're stunned. They don't know what to do with Jesus. The disciples say, should we fight? Peter doesn't even wait for a response. Goes in for a kill, gets one of the ears. There's blood everywhere. People are freaking out. What do you do in this moment? What do you see in Peter? I see a few things. I see fierce loyalty to Jesus, which is really admirable. I see that he is quick, to anger and violence without considering the repercussions of his decisions. I see that he is emotionally reactive. So just this singular outburst of anger, let me tell you how this should have ended. It should have ended with the death of a lot of people right there. It should have ended with Jesus's reputation as a peaceful, righteous man being sullied by all the rumors that go out when it says the disciples struck and killed many of the chief priests and their soldiers. Like, there's nothing wise whatsoever in this reactive moment. Have you ever been emotionally reactive and said, I'm glad I did that? 
Have you ever just like raged on somebody and yelled and been like, that was really productive. Like, I think that's, I'm going to do that more often. It doesn't go well for you. Peter warns us of the destruction we are capable of when we give our emotions control over our will. What, what I love about Jesus is he does not act like you can just get rid of your emotions all the time. Like, I don't know about you, but my emotions swirl. My mind swirls. But the word of God teaches me, I am not a slave to my emotions or my mind. My will can rise above this and I can choose to live for the glory of God with self-control despite what my emotions are telling me to do. There are times when I wanna run. There are times when I wanna fight but God has given me not just a will, but a new heart to bring him glory. And I now have the capacity to not give in to all of these base desires. I have a new heart. I have a will. And I can rise above these things. And, and I'd look at Peter in this moment. If I was like counseling him afterwards, I would say, Peter, this is no one's fault but your own. You chose this. You were not in control. This shows me that you, are actually, you actually have a, probably a streak of violence and angry outbursts, the fact that you could go in so quickly for the kill in this moment, what else have you done in the past? I have a lot of questions for Peter here. Third, let's look at the total self-control of Jesus. I mean, he, he is, you're gonna see this, remarkably clear-headed given his emotional state. If ever there was like a moment where I think Jesus would lose it, like this would be it. This is probably one of the most heated, tense, reactive, exhausting moments in his earthly ministry. Verse 51, but Jesus said, no more of this. I mean, he just yells. He cuts through all the insanity. Probably yells at the top of his lungs because people are about ready to rage and swords are about ready to pierce each other. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. I mean, think about this list of people, this betrayal. Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Like if your case is legitimate, arrest me in public. Arrest me when everyone else can see it. But you have to do this in the dark because you, chief priests, you're motivated by something that is not the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. He says, but this is your hour, meaning this hour of darkness. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I mean, in this moment, Jesus could have called down legions of angels, could he not? I mean, Jesus just says, I am he, and they fly back. And, and, and I think what he's showing is, is that he is unbelievably powerful, yet restraining himself. Why? Because he knows the will of God. His emotions do not want to go onto the cross and die. His anxiety is strong, but he is not controlled by his emotions. He would have been, I don't think, I think appropriately legitimized to like, I don't know, fight back or to not even heal the guy. Like, would you have healed the guy who came over to unjustly arrest you that would lead ultimately to your execution? I don't want to be like, that's what you deserve. You don't deserve an ear. You have no ears to hear, huh? You have no ears. 
But he didn't. He lays his hand on him under complete control. Jesus shows us how to let the spirit control our will despite our emotions and our desires. And the spirit of Christ, Ville Church, the spirit of Christ is in you. Now I want to share with you, I have 44 so what's. So you guys ready? We'll be here for about two hours more. I'm kidding. I only have three. Three so what's. Number one is beware of self-control detract deterrence. I want to share with you four of them. And I want you to pay attention to is the last eight months that we have been under this quarantine-esque time. I want you to think about your personal life. And I want you to ask yourself, how, how have these self-control deterrents impacted me? So here's one. Quenching the spirit of God. So for the last eight months, for much of that, many people have been removed from, we'll just say, the normal functionings of life. Many people have been out of relationship with other people for very long periods of time. And quenching the spirit is the simple idea that I know what God wants me to do through his word and I'm choosing to not do it. Like the spirit of God is, is agreeing with the word of God. Um, I want you to do this. And then I say to what I know God wants me to do, no, I will not do it. I will do something different. That's quenching the spirit. So as I have listened and talked to many of you and many people during this time of COVID, <clears throat> the number of willful, habitual sins that have been developed in this time is off the chains. That there is something in this time as we've been separated from each other relationally, that it has enabled some of the more base parts of us, emotionalism, lustful greed, and that we give into them. And we found ourselves quenching the Holy Spirit. And the more you quench the Holy Spirit, the muscle of self-control gets weaker and weaker. Now, if you're a believer, do you always have some level of the muscle of self-control? The answer is yes, but that muscle gets weaker and weaker the more and more you quench the Holy Spirit. Here's the second one. Neglecting the word of God. It has not been an uncommon discussion that I'll sit down with somebody and say, um, during, during COVID, have you found yourself in the word of God more or less? And the vast majority of people that I speak to will tell me this, almost not at all. Like you would think when we have more time that these disciplines would be, I don't know, like increased. But we have found as we talk to believers, not only has there been willful quenching of the spirit of God, there has been almost no discipline for many of engaging the word of God. I mean, the word of God is powerful to form and to shape your mind and your heart and to guide your behavior so it's according to the will of God. Here's the third one. Distancing from the people of God. And I talk, uh, when I say this, I don't even mean physically in proximity, I mean relationally. Um, there are some people for circumstances beyond themselves that can't be as physically close. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in this time, many have used this as an opportunity to push relationships away. Introverts have fallen into themselves. Extroverts have just kind of like broken away as well. There seems to be this, this habit that many, many people have relationally distanced themselves from others and they are lone rangers. And I'm telling you, whether or not you are in your home, whether or not you're on Zoom groups, whether or not you're here, it doesn't matter. We are called by God to engage and to serve one another wherever we are, whatever context we find ourselves in. But COVID has been this very long season of extended selfishness for many people. And when we are extendedly selfish, are we our best selves? The answer, of course, is no. This is not who I was made to be. I am made to give my life away, to serve, to love one another in any way possible. 
So we found is this trifecta of people quenching the spirit of God, neglecting the word of God, and distancing relationally from the people of God. And it has had catastrophic effects on the church, but more importantly, on individuals and families. Is this ringing a bell for anyone? Let's get to the fourth one. Consuming the world's culture. I mean, Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime, their, ne- their values are going up and Christians are engaging it. I don't have an issue with movies, trust me. What's interesting is that we have found ourselves not just neglecting the word of God, but substituting our free time with unbelievable mass consumption of media. So what's happening is that our minds and our hearts are not being shaped by the word of God, but they're being shaped by pop culture. And it's shifting the way we think and what we value. And and then when we say, "Ah, I'm not really motivated by the glory of God, of course not. Because we've quenched the spirit, neglected the word, relationally distanced, and consumed culture. This is catastrophic, but I've got great news for you. Are you a slave to any of this? You have an unbelievably powerful will coupled with a new heart given to you by God and you have the capacity despite what has happened so far to rise above this because of your new heart and the will that God has given you. This is not, this is not your destiny being cold to the glory of God. This is not what God is abandoning you to. My hunch right now is that the Holy Spirit for some of you is just working on you and saying, it's time. It's time for you to engage. It's time for you to start giving your life away. It's time for you to think about your neighbors and your family and your church differently. It's time for you, if you're unable to leave your house or unable to do as much out like you want to, to start making phone calls and to get on your knees and pray. And it's time for those of you who can to start serving in different ways and meeting the needs of your people. And, and you're like, I don't want to go to a BCCI service day and I just want to stay at home. I know your body does not want you to do much right now. That's the story we hear from a lot of people. It's like, ah, it's hard, you know? It is hard. Everything is hard right now. But our will is greater than our emotions or our lustful greed or our laziness or the habits that we have formed in this season. So whatever place and circumstance and location you find yourself in, God is calling us to something better. And I'm telling you, the people of God cannot keep on this trajectory. It's time for us to serve and to lean in and to love and to pour over God's word and get a new resolve to no longer quench the spirit of God. Here's my second, so what? It's time to repent of our excuses. Yeah, but, yeah, but, you, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, there are a million buts. And the days of being victims are over. No longer can we say, but if this would only change, then I could be a better person. We are fully responsible for the decisions that we make and we have an unbelievable amount of power because of the will we've been given and the new heart to bring God glory. We have a million reasons why we're not responsible for quenching the spirit, neglecting the word, relationally distancing from people and consuming the world's culture. And this is my challenge to us. Let's rise above the excuses and the victimhood because I can't control what circumstance I find myself in. All I can do is choose to bring God glory and use my will above my emotions and my lustful, greedy desires. So number two, it's a little harsh, but I think some of us right now, we need, to, we need to go before the Lord and say, I was wrong. I grew some habits that I'm not proud of. And now I'm gonna repent. I'm actually gonna use this will and I'm gonna do things now for the glory of God instead of the indulgence of self or according to whatever emotions I'm experiencing right here and right now. Here's my last, so what? Bill Church, live the fruit this month like no other. 
Are you aware that there's an election happening, by the way? Anybody aware that's happening? I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is your social media feeds are going to irritate you like never before. If they haven't yet, just wait. Your Thanksgiving dinners, if you choose to have them or how you choose to have them, are probably going to be a little nutsier than, nutsier than usual. Some of you are already like fighting with your family. There's tension. In fact, there are very few families that I speak to right now that do not have some kind of relational tension surrounding the holidays. Like this is, this is real. And this is just the beginning. This month, this month, you have great potential to do great damage or great good for the glory of God. And I just want to encourage you, Village Church, whatever's happening, social media, whatever's happening in your family, whatever's happening in your neighborhood, like your next door neighbors might put up political signs that drive you crazy. We are not controlled by emotional impulsivity, lustful greed, or the deeds of the flesh. We are controlled by the Spirit of God. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to call out some of these pitfalls that we tend to find ourselves in, but I want to release you onto this world this next month to be remarkably, uniquely different I want you to pay attention to all of the things inside of your mind and your heart that are going to detract you from self-control or any of the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to challenge you to rise above these things and be the man, the woman, the student, the child that you know God has created you to be in that very moment. You have a will given to you by God that is incredibly powerful and a brand new heart that gives you capacity to live in love for the glory of God. Now, I can't think of a better time to draw you back to the cross and celebrate communion because communion is a reminder of two things. Number one, we epically have failed at the fruit of the Spirit. Can you give me an amen on that one? Amen. And number two, the blood of Christ is powerful enough to cover every single failure and infraction from everyone in this room. In fact, the world, if they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, give me a louder amen on that one. Amen. And so we come before communion and I have great news for you that the power of the spirit of Jesus that raised him from the dead is the same power that dwells in you and has given you a new heart and new motivation. And now we have the opportunity as reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, filled with the spirit of God, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. We have the opportunity to live differently and to be done with excuses and to live for the glory of God. Communion is a time where I think Many of us need to spend um, repenting and owning and confessing. We're going to have a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you just to talk to God. It's also a time of gratitude and thanksgiving because even as you confess, the word of God speaks over you by the spirit of God as well, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, even before you confess the sin, it's been covered already by the blood of Christ. Uh, some of you are newer to Village Church and you don't totally know what to do with communion. And so communion is for anybody who has placed their faith in Jesus despite where you go to church. Some of you wonder about kids and um, kids are allowed to take communion on two conditions. So kids, listen up. Number one, your mom and dad, dad need to be comfortable. And if they say not yet, then you say, yes, mom and dad, I obey you and I submit to you because you love me, <laughs> right? Number two is if your kids have trusted in Jesus, and if you have confidence that your kids have trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you. Um, they are more than welcome to partake of communion with us. We're going to have a time of silence, a time of confession and repentance. And then when we're done, uh, I'm going to read some scripture and we're going to partake together. You have elements that are all underneath your chairs. You can grab those and get those ready. Let's have a time of silence before the Lord.